Welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So last time we were talking about pottery, and we finished up talking about stone tools. Today we're just going to really briefly talk, finish up talking about pottery and metallurgy. I'm not going to go too in-depth into metallurgy because uh, metal doesn't always survive very well, and also it's a pretty new technology. Um, so with pottery, uh, actually, could you get the door again? I'm sorry, I never close it hard enough. Um, the basic rule is that form follows function. You're going to use the right type of pot or vessel for the specific use you want to have in mind, right? Like uh, we have the same thing with vessels that you drink liquids out of, right? Um, you drink water out of a water bottle. You drink beer out of a beer glass, you drink wine out of you know, a wine glass, and if you mix and match those, you know, imagine drinking wine out of a, a water bottle. It'd be kind of odd, right? Uh, or out of a Yahtzee shaker as, um, oh, what's his name? Doesn't matter. Uh, Jim Gaffigan says, right? Refill my Yahtzee shaker. Uh, same thing with pottery. Very, very briefly and very grossly, um, the side shape of the vessel really shows you what it's for in general. If it's generally open, right, the, the neck is wider than the base, it's usually some sort of serving vessel, usually, right, because it's easy to scoop your hand in or a spoon in or some sort of utensil. It's easy for eating, right? So if we think about plates, even today our plates are basically an open vessel form. Uh, our cereal bowls are open, right? These are things that we're scooping out of somehow with our hands or with our, with our utensils. If it's um, straight-sided, usually that's a, co a cooking vessel. Not always, and there's specific cooking vessels that are flat like pans like this, like a griddle for tortillas or lefse uh, or whatever. But a lot of times cooking vessels will be um, more straight up and down. Um, just due to the functional characteristics of having a fire underneath. You don't want it too open or you're going to get a lot of ash in there, but you don't want it too closed because you still have to get your spoon in there to turn it around. And then if you're storing something, you have what's called a restricted neck where the, where the neck or the opening is small. That means you can put a lid on it or put some you know, a clay sealer on there. Uh, it's less likely to have a lot of evaporation happening. Um, less likely to get a lot of crap falling in it, right? So storage vessels usually have a restricted neck, although, you know, a water bottle or something like that. You can debate whether that's a storage vessel or a, or a useful vessel, right? But those are pretty common because physics works in every culture, right? And so you're going to have similar. And there are, of course, exceptions to every rule. There are certainly serving vessels with restricted necks, and there are certainly storage vessels that are open like that, but they're much rarer than those that follow this. Um, you have to be really careful assigning function to pottery that you don't necessarily know what it's being used for. Um, discard, right? 
pottery is fragile. Um, and so we have a lot of pottery in societies that use it. It's fairly easy to make. Um, and unless it's a really fancy piece of pottery, like your grandmother's china plate that you dropped when you were six and got punished for a long time, right? Uh, a lot of times this stuff is eh, fairly disposable. Um, although that doesn't mean people won't try and repair them because there is some expense in replacing this. Um, and so here there's an incipient or a beginning crack in this vessel and to save it, they've drilled holes and they'll probably tie it through with wire or string. And although it might not be watertight anymore, you can still store a lot of dry stuff or um, serve dry things in it, right? So we can repair. There are repairs before crazy glue. Metal, the earliest metal is 7,000 years ago in Iran, although we have careful, or um, we have uh, a pretty slow adoption of, of metal, um, and it isn't really until last few thousand years where it's become super pop, uh, widespread. In the New World, metal was not used as tools until the Spanish arrived. Although there was metal in the New World, particularly um, copper and gold, um, and to a lesser extent silver, it was mostly used as ornamental, uh, uh, ornamental uses, right? Uh, making masks or making, uh, it's funny, even in South America they would make like metal tools but they would be effigy tools. They would be like show tools that you wouldn't actually like, that you wouldn't actually use, like the suit, like the golden shovels that people use when they're doing the uh, grand, uh, you know, the groundbreaking for a building or something. And it's a golden shovel. That would be like what they would make. They would never make them out of metal to actually use them, which is kind of hilarious, I guess, or maybe not hilarious isn't the right word, but kind of, you know, why not? Uh, that's because their stone tool game was so on point that they didn't really need to use metal. Sorry to slip into some neologisms there. Um, in North America, we have copper, um, Michigan, Minnesota. Are there natural copper deposits in Wisconsin? Anyone know? Where I'm from up in northern Minnesota, they definitely had a lot of uh, native copper that was mined and shipped throughout, or shipped uh, literally on canoes and things, throughout the Mississippi Valley. Um, and people would use it. Um, and they would beat and make metal. I have pictures of it here. Um, they would beat out thin sheets of it that could then be impressed with a hard um, stylus to make these really intricate flat panel patterns uh, in the Pacific Northwest. They would make ingots of copper, and they were kind of like ingots of gold in social equivalent, and they would throw these things into the ocean just to show how rich they were. It's like, uh, you know, the guy on the Facebook meme who's lighting a cigar with a $100 bill, basically the same idea. So it's largely a prestige good. Um, the different types of manufacturing for um, these are in order of increasing complexity. Uh, metal can be made by cold hammering, which is basically if you were just to take a chunk of, say, um, copper or lead and just wail on it with a hammer. That's exactly what it is. So you don't heat it up or anything. Annealing it is when you heat it up slightly and then you beat the tar out of it again to flatten it out. It becomes a little more malleable. And it isn't until later, these, this is also both in order of simplicity and in order of, um, of establishment or when it was first used. Cold hammering is likely first, annealing second, and then smelting, where you heat it enough that it actually becomes molten and you separate out the different types of metal. Um, this wasn't developed until later. Um, it's hard to say exactly when they started because um, 
we only know when we first have evidence of them. Um, let's see, do I have, I don't, um, a lot of the smelting uh, came forward in Africa and spread out of Africa into the Middle East. Um, one way that you can make metal things is through casting, which is pouring molten metal into the molds. And so there's a couple different ways you can do this. Um, one of the most famous is called the lost wax method. So in the lost, lost wax method, you make a really nice bust. Let's say you're making a bust of your, of your mom for Mother's Day, right? And so here's your mom. Here's her nose and eyes, smiley face and hair. Okay, you make that out of a big block of uh, wax. And then you take uh, pottery, or pottery, you take clay, and you encase this thing in a big clay mold. And then when you fire it, all that wax melts away, and you're left with the impression of what you made, right? And you have a fired clay vessel, basically, that's upside down. You turn it upside down, and you pour in molten metal, which fills in all the crevices and recreates the, um, the, the image that you made. Then, the fun part, take a hammer, once it cools, and you crack the crap out of that clay and chunk it off, and you're left with a metal head of your mother uh, made out of copper that's in the exact same shape as the wax uh, mold that you made before, which is pretty neat. Obviously, this takes a lot of metal if you're making a solid uh, copper head of your mother. Um, so some people would make a smaller, an insert out of clay, right? And then when you pour it in, it just fills in these cavities or whatever, right? So there's different nuances to this. And uh, there are other types of molds as well. But this is probably one of my favorites. Um, and then uh, after casting came alloying. Alloying is uh, when you mix different types of uh, metal to combine the properties. Um, what would be the, uh, if for anyone who's ever handled like copper wire and stuff, what is the uh, primary characteristic of copper that you would uh, say? What's copper like when you're, if you ever manipulated it? It's ductile, soft, and bendable, right? Which, uh, if you wanted to make a sword out of copper, it wouldn't be a very good sword. So one of the first alloys was bronze, and bronze is uh, an alloy of um, tin and copper, and it makes a much harder surface. You can also, uh, and I don't recommend this, you know, in your afternoon uh, alloying sessions, uh, you can also make uh, bronze out of arsenic and copper. That will also make it a lot um, harder um, and more usable as a weapon, but obviously you'll go nuts um, and die from the arsenic. I guess you go nuts from mercury. I don't know if you go nuts from arsenic. You just die. Steel is uh, an alloy of, of um, iron and carbon. You know, so like soot and ash and things like that have a lot of carbon in them, and so it's pretty easy to see how uh, they came upon that combination. But steel is a much stronger um, alloy than uh, iron alone, right? And so we have things like swords and such being made out of steel um, from a pretty early time in terms of uh, metal production. All right, um, metal, when you have a new type of material, 
people don't usually use that material to come up with something completely new and novel. Most of the time when a new material is invented or discovered or imported, people will use it to replace existing technology, right? Uh, think about plastics. What do we use plastics for? I mean, I guess it's kind of hard because none of us lived in a pre-plastic era. But a lot of the technology that we had before plastics was just recreated with plastics. And it took until more recent times for us to start using plastic in novel ways. But even I would even argue that most of the ways that we use plastic today is either a replacement for, for wood, right? Like this probably would have been wood or metal in the past. Um, here, you know, glasses would have been metal or glass, right? Uh, I don't know, everything. Wood, a lot of the plastic has just replaced already existing technology, and it isn't until recently that we're coming up with polymers that can do new and novel things, like reflect radar or I don't know what, okay? Uh, same thing with metal. When people made metal, uh, made metal items for the first time, they you know, made, replaced this knife, which probably beforehand the knife blade would have been made out of stone, and now they simply make it out of metal. Remember that the invention of pottery in the New World, uh, they just replaced gourds, right? So again, new, new material, they're just kind of improving on what's already there. And obviously in the New World, a lot of the metal was turned into art. Discard with metal is a little more interesting than pottery because I said pottery was fairly easy to make. Most of us have actually made pottery. Um, and you can make it from stuff in your backyard, depending on your uh, geology and so or soil morphology. Metal is a little more difficult. It has a lot more embodied energy, right? The amount of energy that went into making anything of metal is going to be much higher than uh, other uh, sorts of materials. And so it's less likely that you're just going to get rid of it. It's an expensive item, even like if the use value of the item is done, the metal still has value. For example, uh, two years ago, um, our car was stolen and then uh, got crashed by the person, that whoever stole it and abandoned, and uh, the city called us and it was crunched into a little cube. Well, not quite, it was <laughs> rear-ended and front-ended and crushed together, so it was just completely worthless, but we still got $200 for it because of the scrap metal, right? That's pretty common with metal in every society. Um, it's less likely to be intentionally discarded because most metal still has some use, even if it's as scrap. Uh, if you're talking about um, precious metals like gold. Now, I haven't substantiated this with a serious uh, scholarly study, so take this for what it's worth, but I've heard anecdotally that 50% of gold nowadays is Spanish gold looted from the New World, right? That, that's how much gold was taken from the New World and shipped to Spain and then turned into uh, the gold coffers of Spain and Europe. And then, you know, that spread around because you don't get rid of gold unless you lose it. It stays in circulation. It just gets remelted down and then made into something else, right? So this, I don't know what percent, but a decent percent of any gold item you have is probably really old gold. Um, that being said, this is my second wedding ring because I lost the first one within a month of being married when we were paddling down a canoe or a inner tubing sort of uh, thing, right? So I, I did throw some out of the out of the chain, but it wasn't intentional because it's pretty rare. Maybe if you have a spurned spurned relationship and you're throwing it in the river or something, there you go. Okay. So, but it's but it's fairly rare. So it sticks around 
And because it's melted down, you might not see it, right? If there's some great sword from the Middle Ages and then it gets scrapped and melted down and made into something else, well, then it's disappeared without a trace, basically. All right, let's change gears. Nope, that's not what I wanted. Boop. Let's change gears, gears and go to trade and exchange. Nope, dang it. Which is the closest we get to economics in this class. All right. We're going to have to boogie. All right. So we're going to talk about three primary things for trade and exchange. Um, so the types of exchange, how we trace it as archaeologists, and then the different models we use to understand exchange. So it's kind of, um, it's more complex as we go along because the models of exchange, there we're getting into economic models from today um, and from the modern world that uh, are being used to explain um, exchanges in the past or interactions in the past. So first question is, what is exchange? Um, it's a pretty basic idea of trading one thing for another, perhaps. Um, but it's not necessarily quite f straightforward because there's trade and there's exchange. So we'll talk about the difference between them. Um, so exchange is basically a broad category describing the give and take of items between parties. Really broad genera generalization, right? Because exchange is a really broad category. Um, it doesn't have to be a thing. Items can be ideas. Items can be technology. Items can be people. I mean, if you want to be frank about it, right? Uh, people have been exchanged. Trade, then, the difference is, is a type of exchange involving, involving a valuation system, a valuation system. So trade is a little more formalized, where there's like, if, it, if you can say the going rate is, then it's going to be trade. Trade is uh, a type of exchange. Not all trade is exchange, but not all exchange is trade. Right? There are types of exchange, which we'll talk about, that are not trade. Trade basically is trying to, um, you know, in, in the image here, a fish for a handful of grain or whatever, right? But um, there would be an idea in the society that this amount of one thing is worth about this amount of another thing. It's a social valuation. For some reason, we think that this little tiny bit of metal is way more valuable than anything else I have here. A raincoat, which, you know, on the functional level, this raincoat is way more you know, useful than uh, a little band of metal, right? So uh, there are different ways to value things, and how society chooses to value them may or may not be functional, but it will certainly carry social weight. So um, I think everybody has at least an inborn sense of fairness. It's um, kind of a human universal, I'd say, because it's not only present in us as uh, humans, but also our uh, human...
the moral of this story is that these capuchins had been trained you know, to give the rock back and they get a treat. And usually on, on a normal day, a cucumber is a fine treat. Everybody likes a little bit fresh cucumber, mm, yum. But if their neighbor is getting a grape when they're not getting uh, a grape and they continue to get cucumber, the grape is more highly valued, probably because it has more sugar and whatever. But still, it's not fair. Even though yesterday when they were both getting cucumbers, cucumber's perfectly fine. But now when the other person's getting a grape and I'm still getting the cucumber, it's not fair, right? Uh, this is um, it's true in chimpanzees, it's true in all kinds of primates. Um, so you screaming to your parents, or your siblings screaming to your parents, it's not fair. It's just the, the, inner, um, the, the inner primate in us coming out, right? Um, and so it's, it's when we're doing exchange, we're thinking that we're being very sophisticated about it, especially when we're doing trades, where we have some sort of valuation system. And we're, you know, we think we're really shrewd business people, and you want to think that you're getting like the upper hand, or maybe not if you're dealing with family or friends, you want to be at least fair, things like that, right? Um, but it's a deeply seated sort of um, indicator in us as primates. So just keep that in mind as we go along. Um, boop, boop, boop. Okay, so we exchange both physical uh, goods and ideas. Uh, ideas can lead to making physical goods. They can be completely aphysical goods like religion, um, right? If you think about um, organized religion, um, a lot of times you'll um, be a member of a religion, and what you get out of that is largely the idea, right? Um, the idea, the morality, whatever. Any, anything you're getting is basically in your mind, uh, or metaphysically, if you're right, if you're a practitioner, you're, you are getting some sort of benefit from giving um, physical, real things to the the church or the mosque or the synagogue or the uh, temple or wherever you're giving them, you are getting something in return in your belief system, right? Metaphysically, you're accruing good karma or um, you know good good works or whatever. Um, but in that instance, you're exchanging physical goods for ideas. Pretty common. Um, people exchange ideas all the time. Um, things like music, any sort, of, anything that's intellectual property, perfectly fine. Um, and in some t cases, they overlap, right? Like fakes. Really, the the actual functional difference between a real uh, a real Rolex and this fake Rolex or whatever um, probably isn't huge. And unless you know what you're looking for, you probably can't tell the difference. However, the idea of a real Rolex watch is much more valuable than the idea that's associated with this fake one, right? So it's it's a fun and interesting kind of nurture versus nature kind of parallel where it's like functionality versus social view of the value uh, overlapping. Okay, so let's talk about the types of exchange. And these are a number of um, different, basically different models of exchange. Um, maybe we'll have a, what do you call it? A, a mentee on them uh, on Wednesday, perhaps. So we're going to go from the least complex to the most complex way of exchange. So direct access is when you go and get the resource yourself. 
So if you go fishing on a boat in the lake or, in, or on the ice or whatever, and you get fish and bring it home, that is direct access. It's not technically exchange because you're not exchanging it with anybody, except the environment perhaps. But I don't know where else we'd put direct access because what am I going to do? I'm going to talk for five minutes on direct access three weeks ago. Makes no sense, right? So it fits here in exchange as it is basically the exchange with yourself. And one way that we can tell it's happening is through something uh, called spatial analysis. So basically, um, here we have different, um, different distances from the center of the mountain. And this is artifacts with a type of pottery with um, a temper. Remember, the temper goes in the, in the clay to make it have different characteristics. So here's the uh, distance of each village or pueblo or hamlet or whatever. Um, here's the distance from the location where that temper is available. And then this is the percent of pottery sherds with that type of temper in it. And as you notice, people who are closer, within 10 kilometers, have a much higher percentage of that type of temper in their pottery. And as you go farther away, you have less and less, probably because if you have to walk 30 kilometers to get that type of, basically, sand, and then carry it back, make your little clay out of it, a little bowl or whatever, that's a lot of work. And so maybe these folks over here have other types of sand that work almost just as well that they'd rather use rather than having to walk so far. So this is called fall-off analysis because the amount of a commodity falls off as the distance to the center increases. There's an inverse relationship. The farther you are away from the location of the resource, the less likely it is to occur. So we take this as kind of like our baseline. And anything that deviates from this probably has a social reason for it, right? And we'll see that as we go along. Number two is down the line. And this is where, you know, it's like a game of telephone, but with stuff or ideas, I guess. This is where a resource is passed from one person to another down the line in an exchange network. Um, here, I mean, this looks more like a re re uh, reciprocity sort of exchange where people are exchanging different things. But if we think of stone tool material, right, I might live right next to the mountain that has a whole bunch of obsidian. So I go and get a big whole chunk of obsidian. I might take a little off for myself. And then I'll give what's left to Dirk, and they'll give me some fish or whatever. Dirk will use a little bit of it and pass it to Eric. He'll take off a little bit and pass it on and on and on, and down it goes, and becomes smaller and smaller the farther you get. So the fall-off curve for down the line looks about the same as direct access, because each person, assumedly, is using a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, and the main amount gets smaller as you go farther away. These folks are going to be more likely to have more exchange of it, and then it falls off as it goes. So unfortunately, with fall-off analysis, it's very difficult to separate out um, direct access and down the line. They look fairly similar in the archaeological um, uh, signature. So reciprocity or gift, this is the idea that any gift is, you know, truly free and from the heart is anthropologically a little bunk. There is always something behind a gift. It's a very strong, it's the glue that holds society together, giving gifts. Um, 
So reciprocity of gifts is a freely given resource, and one usually expects to get something in return. Maybe not directly the exact same amount of, you know, if it's measured in money, uh, maybe you're not going to expect the same amount back in gifts, um, but maybe you'll temper that with, you know, um, if you're a very wealthy person and you give a gift to somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, maybe a cousin or something, you don't really expect them to give you a gift of the same value back, but maybe something, uh, at least a, a nice show of, um, a nice show of uh, appreciation or something, right? So there's a social expectation of reciprocity. Isn't it awkward, right? I'm sure there's plenty of uh, stand-up comedian and or sitcom lines where somebody uh, gets a Christmas gift or something from somebody at work that they didn't expect to give them a gift, and they're like, oh, thank you. I forgot yours at home today. I'll bring it tomorrow. And then they run out and get something, right? Um, because there's that social expectation of reciprocity. Um, and so there's, I think, three types of reciprocity I'm going to talk about, although reciprocity gurus might have more or split them up more finely. Positive reciprocity is true, I guess, altruism, right? This is when you really give something from the heart, I guess you'd say, in the, as we just speak casually, right? This is something that you actually just give and don't expect anything back from you. Usually, this type of charity or whatever is it confined to kin groups, usually within families, right? So your parents, perhaps, gave you food, clothes, house, housing, whatever, or somebody did, because you're all here. Um, at some point, you've been given something by somebody, and they didn't expect you to pay it back, um, right? My grandmother, notwithstanding, who had a little black book who charged everything like that her kids like cost her over the years and like would guilt them with it. That was my great grandmother actually did that <laughs> to her adult kids. Like you cost me so much, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, um, ooh. Uh, <laughs> most parents don't do that. They actually, you know, they give truly from their heart because it's their kid, whatever. That's altruism. Uh, we do see that in other instances. Um, and, you know, usually it's so, uh, unusual that you'll see it like as a news story, like a flush fluff news story, you know, like, oh, so-and-so gave this person like a ridiculous amount of money to follow their dream of yada yada. Or, you know, um, person takes in this other person out of the cold, out of the goodness of their heart, it's like news, right? Um, I'm sure you've all seen memes like that on Facebook where you'll never believe what so-and-so gave to this person sort of idea. Um, pretty rare. Uh, except for among kin. Then we have balanced reciprocity. Balanced reciprocity is the idea that you don't feel like you're having one pulled over on you, and you don't feel like you're pulling something over on another person. You're giving them what you think is a really fair deal, and usually the other person also feels like it's a pretty fair deal. Balanced reciprocity is an even trade. Usually, you do this with somebody that you're going to see fairly often. Think about it. You don't want to have a, what we're going to negative reciprocity, where you're trying to pull one over on the other person. You don't want to do that all the time. Let's say you go to a coffee shop every day and get your morning coffee. If they've been serving you like instant coffee, you're gonna and you find out you're not going to go there anymore because why would you, right? If someone that you're interacting with on a regular basis is you find out they're hoodwinking you, bad news. So that means 
uh, it behooves uh, people who are interacting with one another a lot to have an even trade uh, with one another. And then we have negative reciprocity. Negative reciprocity is usually where one party is out to make a profit, or both are out to make a profit off the other one. Um, and so we see this in basically every instrument of the modern economic system um, as we know it in this country. Uh, you know, they might want you to think it's balanced reciprocity, and that is really smart on a sociological level, right? They want you to think, oh, we're dealing evenly and fairly with you, of course, because we're friends, we're like family. And then what they're actually doing is using your feeling of, yes, I'm getting a fair deal because we're friends to hoodwink you and take, your, take a little extra um, and make more on, on what your, um, on your deal, right? Um, this is often done between people who don't know each other very well or people that expect only to see them once a day, or uh, once a day, uh, once in a lifetime sort of thing. Like, this is why, I don't know, used car salesmen and traveling salesmen and all kinds of salespeople have such a negative rap, right? Because you can tell they're trying to like sell you something and they're acting like your best buddy. It's because they want you to feel like you're getting balanced reciprocity when in fact they're taking you to the cleaners, right? Uh, but this happens in the ancient world as much as the modern world, right? Um, but it's really confined to people you don't see very often, if ever again. <laughs> Especially if you're really giving them a bad deal, they're going to, uh, they're going to be really mad at you, right? That's why you leave town when you're a traveling salesman after you've hoodwinked everyone. And then we have the boogeyman of the right, redistribution, right? We hear about this in the news and talking about the welfare state, whatever. Okay. In anthropology, redistribution, we don't value judge it as good or bad. Uh, redistribution is just the organized exchange through a central point or authority. It has... Um, a lot of applicability in ancient states. So when we're talking about the Romans um, coming up here soon, we're going to see lots of types of redistribution. Um, just like now, taxes are a type of redistribution, and the state would take in surplus and extra, you know, what it deems to be extra, more than you need to survive and do well or whatever, and then they save that, they use it supposedly for public good, and they redistribute it in times of need. This was in pre-monetary societies. A lot of times uh, the redistribution would be of grain or other agricultural products or things you need to survive. Um, and so, again, we're not value judgment, uh, judging it in the modern economy. Uh, we're just talking about this is one way that usually centralized states helped um, enmesh themselves in the social contract that was an ancient society and an ancient state, right? The job of the ruler or of the priest or of the ruling class was to manage this surplus and then um, let it out when necessary. And this is why during famines, a lot of times famines had bad effects for the rulers in a society that had redistribution. If they had nothing to redistribute, the people could be justly upset and say, we've been giving you sacks of grain every year for the last 10 good years. What have you done with them, right? I want 
my redistribution because I've paid into this system, right? Same thing in the past. That's hungry people make the best mobs, so you definitely want to uh, make sure you have that grain on hand, right? Sorry, that's kind of hard to read. Uh, the fourth, nope, fifth one we're talking about is a market uh, or a centralized trading post. So market or a centralized trading post. So if redistribution is basically a top-down uh, sort of uh, government or municipality or whatever organized um, uh, trade or exchange scheme, a market is in some ways under the aegis or under the wing of a, of a government. Uh, usually it's a, an area set aside for trading because at this point it's usually almost trading. Um, but it's generally more laissez-faire. Some markets, today we certainly have regulations on our market. We don't have a true capitalist free market system because in a true capitalist free market system, you can sell anything. I mean anything, like people, or yourself, or your body, or whatever. That's like, if you want to talk about like just pure, unfettered, complete capitalism laissez-faire, you, then you can sell anything you want. If, it's up to you individually, right? You can sell whatever you want. So I don't think there's ever been anywhere in the world that's been like completely, truly a free market. So even these markets where this is the Aztec market in Tenochtitlan before the Spanish came, where I, re obviously, it's not a photograph, it's a drawing, obviously. Um, but uh, they had, you know, stalls where vendors could come and they could sell, and they had judges for market disputes when people would say, well, I paid him, and they'd say, oh, I didn't pay, and it's worth this much, and uh, they'd have judges who would walk around and um, adjudicate disputes. So there was some a little bit of government oversight, but they didn't like set prices or things like that. There, you know, market was regulated more, more freely. So there were certainly um, a lot of markets in the ancient world, um, pretty common. Then we have middleman, and I apologize, I can't, I don't know how to neutralize that. To, like you can always do salesperson, um, but I don't know how to do middle middle person trading. Is I don't know if that works. Anyway. A middleman or a middle person is an agent working for itself or others to move resources from one location to another. So this is a person who um, may be just like the FedEx of the ancient world, where they're paid a fixed price to move something, or they could be the traveling salesperson of the ancient world, where they buy it usually closer to the source, and then they walk around with their backpack full of stuff at least in countries or societies that didn't have beasts of burden, they go into the society or into the town where the, this product isn't readily available and they set up shop usually in the market and then they sell it, right? But often a middleman is more like a distribution uh, company and they have, you know, the owner of the property pays them uh, to move it to the person who is buying it. Anything else I want to say about that? <laughs> okay, uh, often these people are professionals, right? Uh, these Spanish, oh, those are actually South Americans, but uh, in the Aztec world, they were called pochteca, and they were like a class of people. Like That was their job. They were bearers. That, they moved stuff. They were like the semi-truck drivers of the, ancient, of the ancient world. And then we have number seven, the port of trade. 
the port of trade is kind of like, I don't know, in like every um, space sci-fi movie or show, there's always like the trade outpost where there's like, there's no laws here and you can come and buy and sell things and smuggle them, whatever, like oh, Mos Eisley or whatever in Star Wars, that's basically a port of trade. It's a neutral territory set aside for exchange. So there are some t uh, city states in Europe um, where they were set up as this like neutral trading ground between two large powers and that was their, that was their thing, right? That was how they made their economies work is their neutrality set them apart so even warring parties could, could trade amongst themselves. Kind of a neat, a neat niche. <laughs> uh, and usually the people that went to ports of trade weren't people like you and me, they were usually uh, professional traders. Perhaps today, um, the dark web, which I've only heard about but I'm really interested and I wanna find out more about it. Uh, apparently, that might be our new, the new digital port of trade where you can go on there and order everything from, from what I hear, uh, children to murders and things like that. So, <laughs> Ray, there was a guy arrested not recently for hiring a hitman on the dark web. Ooh, what a world. Okay, uh, you used to have to go to like a CD bar and try and find a hitman, right? Okay, uh, or a hit person, excuse me. Okay, uh, types of goods. So we can talk about, there's a lot of different ways to split up items. One of the most important uh, for our purposes is uh, commodities and valuables. Uh, commodities are usually treated very separately in the marketplace. Um, they're not usually traded for one another. Um, so a commodity is a really common item. It's almost in the name, commodity. Um, commodities are really common items, and they're exchanged without restriction for all intents and purposes. They're freely exchanged, right? Usually this is things like basic food staples, right? Very rarely is a government going to say, no, you can't have that wheat, right? Um, they're not usually going to inject themselves into the marketplace. Um, on the other hand, we have valuables which are often for elites only. Um, valuables are restricted. They're not freely traded. Not everyone can have them. Um, they might be restricted by a monetary system that puts them out of reach for most people, which makes them valuable and rare. They, they might be valuable or rare because there isn't a lot of them and the person who sits on the source of them might have access to them and no one else, right? There's a lot of different reasons why something can become valuable. Uh, in a world, in a world where everybody is dying from a disease and only somebody, some people have the uh, antidote or the, the vaccine, right? That would become a valuable. Even though it's necessary for life, it's not necessarily a commodity because there's not a lot of it. So common items freely exchange, valuables rare items, and they have ex controlled exchange, right? So uh, if we're talking about food, bread is a pretty common item. There's not like a type of bread that you're not going to be able to buy. Uh, but then there's things like truffles, which uh, you should probably save your money for something else because you can buy a heck of a lot of ramen for what you could pay for, you know, that one little truffle. So buy the ramen. <laughs> Valuables are often given as gifts. 
Um, because it, <laughs> I mean, you can give someone a loaf of bread as a gift, or you can give somebody a commodity. Here, fun sociological experiment for you all to do. Oh, I wish it was like a major gift uh, coming up, uh, you know, like if it was a holiday season or some sort of uh, period where everyone gives everyone else gifts. I think it'd be really fun if I, one of your homework assignments was to give somebody a commodity for a gift, you know, and then your, your brother can be really excited that you gave him a pair of socks for Passover or whatever, right? Um, you don't give gifts on Passover, um, right? But if then you gave him uh, Gucci socks, which are a valuable commodity, well, or a valuable, excuse me, uh, then you'd be, then you'd be, you know, well, depending on your brother, uh, high on his list, right? Okay. Um, Not yet. Um, as you might have guessed, valuables are defined as valuables by the society that that uh, that holds them as important, right? Um, if you ever saw The Simpsons, where Homer builds a toaster that turns into a time machine, and he keeps going back and coming back to alternate timelines, and then he comes back to one, and he's like, "I'll just have a donut." And, he, and, and Marge says, oh, there's no donuts here. And then it starts raining donuts from the, from the sky, but he had already gone to the, the prime timeline, um, right? So in that situation, the donuts wouldn't be valuable. All right, they wouldn't be now either, bad example. Oh, well, just want to throw the Simpsons in there. Um, so it depends on the society. If there's a lot of something around, even if it seems valuable to another society, it might not be seen as a valuable there. For example, um, to the Maya and the Aztec, uh, jade and uh, green feathers and other things that are green were the equivalent uh, of value or importance as gold to the Spanish. Actually, the earliest um, accounts of the Aztecs when the Spanish came over, they were like shocked at how like greedy the Spanish were for gold. They were just like, why are they so interested in this metal? What is wrong with these people? Imagine being invaded by aliens from a planet that didn't have I don't know, sawdust, right? <laughs> and we're like, sure, you want our sawdust? You can have our sawdust, right? But for them, it's, that would be a basic, it's not quite that stark of an example, right? Because the Aztecs did value gold, but not to the level of jade. Um, so they, sure, we'll give you gold gifts. Those are like cheapy throwaways. That's great. Uh, same thing in uh, Egypt. We're gonna go to Egypt soon. And in Egypt, silver was more valuable than gold, which is kind of counter to mo what most of us think. Uh, the valuation of gold above silver because they had local gold sources, but they didn't have silver. So silver was an import, so it was exceedingly rare. Therefore, silver was more valuable than gold to the Egyptians. Now, in the couple of minutes we have left, um, use your thinking caps and uh, what sorts of evidence based on other things that we've looked at when we're talking about the origins uh, what sorts of evidence would we use to identify the origin of, excuse me, of uh, a valuable or a commodity? Uh, if we find something, let's say we're digging at a site, and we find a really great example of X, how would we go about figuring out where that came from? Any ideas? Mm-hmm. And what, what might 
be an indication of where it's from. Sure, a, a rare thing that comes only from one place, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like jade in the New World only came from one valley. So any jade is from there, right? Anyone else? Sure, yeah, there's different traditions um, of metalworking or, uh, yeah, other, other items that are only made in one location, sure. There's also isotopes, the chemical signatures of where they're from, right? So um, different, even though, you know, gold is gold, there's going to be trace elements uh, along with it, um, and that can identify where they're from. Um, all kinds of metals have, you know, trace impurities, and they're going to have different types of impurities. You can do the same thing with pottery because um, the local geology is going to be different. And again, trace elements and little bits that are added to it um, are going to leave signatures behind. So those are some of the best ways to identify, um, identify where things are from. We're going to look more at the origin and then wrap up the rest of it next time on Wednesday, as long as I make it back from St. Louis in time. So uh, check your email. Unless I have like major car trouble, I'll be back from St. Louis by class time. Uh, but uh, you know, check your email. I will send out an email if for some reason I get stranded in somewhere in Illinois, and uh, and I'll cancel class. But um, unless you get an email from me saying class is canceled before class starts, then class is on, and I'll see you all then. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.